0: Hi, my name is David Elstein. This is the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery podcast. Each episode is designed to help busy orthopedic surgeons learn more about the ABOS and board certification. This episode is slightly different. It is the audio recording of the webinar on the 2024 ABOS Part 2 examination. You will hear from Dr. David Martin, ABOS Executive Director. More information about the Part 2 examination can be found at www.abos.org. If you enjoyed this episode of the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery podcast, please subscribe to us on Apple, Stitcher, Amazon, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts so you know the next episode is
1: posted. I'm David Martin. I'm the Executive Director at the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery, and we're going to talk about the Part 2 Oral Examination Application and Application Process. So first, I'd like to cover the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery Mission Statement, Our mission is to ensure the safe, ethical, and effective practice of orthopedic surgery. We do that by maintaining the highest standards for education, practice, and conduct. And we do that through certification, examination, and maintenance of certification for the benefit of the public. I'd also like to cover, uh, before we get started, one of our important guiding principles. The ABOS believes there is no place for bias or discrimination within the field of orthopedic surgery or within our organization. And we are certainly doing everything we can to be sure that there is not any uh, evidence of bias in any of our examination or board certification processes. I'd like to introduce you to our board of directors. This is our board of directors at our fall meeting uh, in 2022. And I show you this uh, picture for several reasons. Number one, this is an extraordinarily dedicated group of individuals. These individuals uh, give up their time voluntarily four to five weeks per year away from family and away from practice to look at all of our processes, dedicate their time, and make sure that we have all of our programs uh, functioning as best as they possibly can. I also show you this to let you know that we are all practicing orthopedic surgeons uh, just like you. Uh, Our board members go through the same processes of board certification recertification and maintenance of certification is you. And those dates are listed here uh, with uh, recertification dates. And also several of our board members hold subspecialty certification in either surgery, the hand or orthopedic sports medicine. We also do have a public member as well. I'd encourage you to contact any one of these individuals if you have questions or suggestions about any of our processes and certainly can feel free to contact myself or any one of the staff members who you'll meet tonight. So just to go over uh, uh, an overview of what we'll go over tonight, we'll talk about ABOS board certification requirements, what those requirements are to become board certified. We'll talk about the application and the nuts and bolts of the application and what's required on the application. We'll talk about our case list program, and what you need to do to submit a case list, that will also include information about our Patient Reported Outcomes Program. And finally, we'll answer your questions. And once we finish the talk, if you will raise your hand in Zoom, I will call on you, we'll unmute you, you can share your question, and then hopefully we can answer that. And once we answer your question, please lower your hand. And if you find someone else asked your question, uh, go ahead and lower your hand as well, and that'll help us Uh, get through as many questions as we can. So the 2024 ABOS Part 2 oral examination, that is what we're here to talk about tonight. Preparation for that examination, which is approximately a year and a half off, uh, consists of four parts. First is meeting the requirements. Second is submitting a case list. Third is completing a Part 2 examination application. And fourth is submitting an application fee. Now, all of those required documents and fees are submitted through your ABOS dashboard, and you can find that by going to www.abos.org and logging in with your username and password, and that will take you to your password-protected dashboard, and that is how you'll be able to submit all of these required documents and fees. So what are the requirements to sit for the Part 2 oral examination, which is the last step in becoming ABOS board certified. First of all, you must take the ABOS part two oral examination within five years of passing the ABOS part one examination. That time, those five years from the time that you pass the ABOS part one examination until those five years expire is the time that you are ABOS board eligible. Now, if you do a fellowship after you pass part one, that time is not counted. So, Uh, That that stops the clock and it's still five years from the time then that you finish that fellowship. Uh, It. You have to have taken part one before the fellowship for that clock to stop, though, if you did a fellowship before then past part one, it's five years of board eligibility. You must have a full and unrestricted license to practice medicine in the United States or Canada. That license is not required if you're engaged in full-time practice with the federal government. That will be with the military or the federal government. This is a, a, an important one. The next bullet point, you must start practice and have been granted hospital admitting and surgical privileges on or before November 1 of 2022. So that's November 1 of 2022. Last November, that allows you to start Uh, submitting a case list and puts you in position to take the examination in July of 2024. In addition, you must be continuously and actively engaged in the practice of operative orthopedic surgery, other than as a resident or fellow, in one location for at least 17 consecutive full calendar months. And those calendar months must include November 1, 2022, through March 31st, 2024. So that's the 17 months, November of 22 through March of 24. You have to be in the operative practice of orthopedic surgery and be in one location. Your hospital and practice affiliations must remain the same during that 17 month time period, and you must maintain full hospital admitting and surgical privileges throughout that time period. So hopefully that's clear. Again, the 17 months, Of practice needs to include November 2022 through March 2024. So that's essentially this required 17-month time period. As far as submitting a case list, you will enter all surgical cases from April 1 to September 30 of 2023. That's coming up in just a couple weeks. And you enter those cases in which you're the primary surgeon. You don't enter cases in which you serve as a co-surgeon or an assistant surgeon, and there's a certain list of procedures that are not included on the case list as primary CPT codes. That list of procedures is found uh, on our website at www.abos.org. If during that six-month period from April through September, you're away from your practice for 14 or more consecutive days, during that case collection period, for any reason, vacation, illness, whatever, the starting point for the collection period will then be backed up uh, to March 1st. Okay, so we just add a month at the beginning. If you're away from your practice for more than 30 consecutive days during the collection period, for any reason, you need to contact the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery and talk to your certification specialist. So if you're gonna be away for 14 or more consecutive days, You need to back up your case list to March 1st. The cases are submitted through your ABOS dashboard and detailed instructions are found in what looks like information packet preparing your case list that's a document that's on your ABOS dashboard. There are multiple instructional videos that will help you uh, enter cases and those are also found on the ABOS website. So many people ask, why do we do a case list? Why does the board require a case list? What what is that used for? We feel like it's an incredibly important way to evaluate a candidate's practice who is applying for board certification. It allows us a snapshot of your practice. It also provides you with the opportunity for self-evaluation of your performance in practice as you look at six months of operative cases and look at the follow-up for those six months before you finalize your application uh, later in the fall. In addition, from that case list, we will then make up a feedback report that compares you to your peers, and we will get that back to you uh, at the end of the process, and you'll be able to look at your case list and compare your performance uh, to your peer group. In addition, and most importantly, the case list forms the basis for cases that are chosen For presentation at the oral examination. We also will evaluate the case list with algorithms that look at complication rates, a number of certain types of procedures, number of never events, those types of things to get a good snapshot of your practice. So let's talk about patient reported outcomes in the ABOS Patient Reported Outcomes Program. Patient reported outcomes will be collected. Uh, by the ABOS for all of the surgeries that you perform during your collection period. So you can enter case information at the time that you schedule the surgery. So as you're scheduling cases in April, you should start now and start putting that information into the uh, caseless system, which we call Scribe, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. That information can be entered by a staff member, by your surgery scheduler, And what we need there is the patient's email address, and that allows us then to solicit patient-reported outcomes uh, using the uh, uh, patient-reported outcomes system. We have provided communication templates for you to give uh, to your patients to allow them to give you permission to utilize their email in that way. And those are in the packet that, again, is posted on your candidate portal. Once we get that email, we solicit a patient reported outcomes questionnaire. And we solicit that in both pain interference and physical function. And we do that preoperatively at the six-month follow-up time period and at the one-year follow-up time period. The questions that are given to the patient vary based on their response and surgical site. It's usually anywhere from five to seven questions, takes them a very short time to complete, and we really get great response from patients. We have those available in both English and Spanish. So there's a place to check there whether the patient speaks English as a first language or Spanish. And if you'd like to see what that looks like, you can register yourself as a patient on your uh, case list and enter an email address and that will send you uh, those uh, questionnaires. Just remember, delete that before you finalize your case list. And many people ask, well, what about a trauma case? You may submit a trauma case shortly after the index procedure, and generally that preoperative evaluation can be filled out by the patient and is fairly accurate for their uh, pain interference and uh, physical function during that preoperative period. What we utilize that information for is through our credentials committee, we also provide that back to you as a feedback report on the patient reported outcomes that come from your case list. So, those are the two ways that that information is used. This is what that initial uh, dashboard on Scribe looks like. This is the information uh, that uh, we need to start that patient reported outcomes and start your case list. And basically, in see that here there's a drop down menu. For the hospital, surgical center, or office, there's a patient ID number, generally the med- hospital medical record number, initials, the patient age, their um, sex, uh, and then whether they prefer Spanish. The surgery date is a, a, can be uh, checked off on the calendar. And then a brief description of the surgery. This is not everything you did. This is something like open reduction internal fixation of distal radius fracture. Or right total hip replacement or left anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction. There's a place there to classify the anatomy, and those are things that you will recognize if you click that drop down menu. If the patient opts out of the patient reported outcomes and says, no, I don't want to give my email address, you can then check this box. Otherwise, you enter the email address here and submit that, and that will then launch that patient reported outcomes program. As you then go back to enter cases, uh, once, once you finish that dashboard, this is the full caseless entry. So it will include the patient's initials, the ID number, their age. Again, the gender comes in a drop-down menu, as does the hospital, surgery center, or office. And you have the date of surgery. You can add or edit a hospital, by the way, so you can operate in multiple hospitals and enter those cases consecutively. You put in an ICD or 9 or 10 code and then the uh, CPT treatment codes, and then, again, the brief description, and you can put in um, complications. We like to hear about unexpected reoperations, unexpected readmissions, and then as you click yes for either anesthetic complication, surgical, technical complication, or medical complication, you'll get a drop-down menu and be able to characterize those uh complications quite well. And you'll have a brief area to explain uh, what occurred with those complications and how they were treated. So let's move on to the application. The application will be available in April. Uh, The application and caseless are due November 1, 2023. The application requests information that you are routinely see on applications of this type and that you're used to entering. A couple special notes. It will ask for your practice location with the names of your partners and their emails. So you want to have your partner names and emails uh, handy. If you have a large practice, there's a limited number, uh, and you want to put in those people who practice uh, most closely uh, to your practice. You need to have the hospitals and surgery centers where you have admitting and surgical privileges verified by a current letter, And that's a letter that indicates your original appointment date and the type of appointment. Okay, again, it's not something that says Dr. Smith has privileges and they're active. We want the original appointment date and the type of appointment that that is for each hospital and surgery center where you have admitting and surgical privileges. The application will also ask for the names and emails in each of those institutions of the chiefs of staff, surgery, orthopedics, emergency medicine, radiology, anesthesiology, the head of orthopedic nursing, and the OR nursing supervisor. Uh, And so those are names and emails that you wanna have ready as you roll into filling out the application. The application will also ask you for your state medical licenses, a list of all of them with the dates and the license numbers uh, in each state. Finally, for the ABOS peer review program, there's a drop down menu that allows you to select five ABOS diplomates who are familiar with your practice, and you'll get those off a drop down list that has a list of all of our diplomates. So, what exactly is the peer review program? Now that we sort of uh, talked about the case list in the application, our peer review program is a comprehensive review process. We feel it's incredibly important to credentialing applicants prior to them sitting for an examination. What happens is we will utilize those email addresses from your application. We also use a zip code list of diplomates in your area, concentric circles around your practice, and we will send out an electronically accessed survey to all of those individuals. And they are then able to provide ratings in areas of patient care, Surgical skills, professionalism, and communication. Um, Again, for the sources of that, we use your application and we also use a zip code list. What about the costs and expenses? The application fee is $975 if you submit the application by 4 PM Eastern time on November 1, 2023. Okay, November 1, 2023, 4 PM Eastern time, $975. And that you submit your application, your case list, and the application fee. If you would like an additional two weeks through to November 15th, 2023, at 4 p.m. Eastern time, there's a $500 late fee. And you may pay that, and then you have an additional two weeks. At 4 p.m. Eastern time on November 15th, that process closes, and you will not be able to submit the application after that time. We will be sending reminders, but just understand that at 4 p.m. on November 15th, uh, the application is going to close. Then the examination fee is $1,350, and that will be due once you're approved to sit and and begin to schedule the scheduling process. And that's in June of 2024. As far as your case upload and what do you upload to take the examination? In April of 2024, so just over a year from now, you'll have submitted your case list, submitted your application. We will review your application, review all the peer review, and if you are then reviewed by our credentials committee and approved to sit for the 2024 oral examination, we will then select 12 cases from your case list, and you'll receive that list, and those are the cases that you'll be responsible for presenting at the oral examination. You will then receive uh, instructions about uploading the required documents and images for each of those 12 cases. I would encourage you to follow the instructions carefully. We take great pains in making the instructions very detailed and clear, and they outline exactly what you should and what you should not upload as part of each of those 12 cases to present at the time of the oral examination. Uh, On the day of the examination, now this is in July of 2024, um, uh, this is some advice, hopefully you'll remember this at that time. Uh, I don't think it's a time to be a rugged individualist, and I would say that we have over 200 examiners who, again, give up four to five days away from their practice and away from their family in July uh, to help us administer the examination, and they function as volunteers. So I think dressing in professional attire really indicates to them that uh, you are serious about the examination. There are email instructions that you'll receive. You need to follow those carefully as to where and when to meet because we have an orientation on the day of the examination. We check everyone in. It's very important for you to be there. Uh, It should go without saying, but I'll add this. You do need picture ID to check into the examination. So driver's license or passport are the, the, the best two options for that so that you will need that when you check in the day of the examination. Everything you submit for those 12 selected cases will be available on the examination computer when you get to the examination. So all the things that you upload are the things that you will use to present those 12 cases. You'll then enter the examination and you'll be examined in four sessions of 25 minutes each. With five minutes of break time between each session. And in each of those 25 minute sessions, okay, four 25 minute sessions, 25, five break, 25, five break, 25, five break, 25, 25 there will be two examiners and they will evaluate you on three cases and they'll go through the 12 cases in order. The first two examiners will evaluate you on cases one, two, and three. Second two examiners will come in, cases four, five, six, and so on. If you think about that, there's three cases in 25 minutes. That's about eight minutes per case. That's not a lot of time. So just keep that in mind, eight minutes per case. And that leads into how we score the examination. So each examiner, as they sit across from you, independently scores each case. And they score each case in nine different facets. And those are the ones listed here. This is our scoring rubric. It's available on our website. You can click on it on the website. It becomes a PDF. You can print it out and all those words and will become readable. But you will receive nine scores. So keep in mind as you go through the cases in each eight minute period, you're trying to hit on all nine of these points as the examiners are gonna score you in each of those areas. And it's a pretty tight scoring window, right? It's it's three above expected level, two expected level, one below expected level, zero, unacceptable. Keep in mind, there's not uh, a smoke filled dark room that the examiners then get together and caucus over this. They score case by case. They don't pass or fail. Not one examiner passes or fails a candidate. They score each case that they are presented. And they are then graded by our psychometricians on their consistency and on their severity or leniency to make sure that every candidate receives a fair examination. So we then adjust each score based on the severity or leniency of the examiners, based on the difficulty of that skill, and based on the difficulty of the case. And that's how we arrive at a score. And then our oral examination committee chooses a passing standard based on the scoring rubric, and that is applied. So uh, that that's how the examination scored. So that's why I say think about that as you upload and as you consider those eight minutes, you want to hit on these areas, data gathering, diagnose, interpretive skills, treatment plan, indications, technical skill, complications, outcomes, ethics, and applied knowledge. Those should just click off in your mind as you go through the examination. So How would I recommend a parent preparing for the examination? There are multiple videos on our website at www.abos.org. The scoring rubric is there. I would encourage you to upload the documents and images yourself. Uh, You can assign that to someone else. But when you're sitting in the examination booth and it looks exactly like this and there's two people across from you, they're looking at the same documents and images that you uploaded. And it's really important that you upload those yourself, thinking about the scoring rubric, thinking about how you're gonna present each facet on that scoring rubric. You can see there's a scoring rubric sitting on the table right there, okay? That's what the examiners use. We task them to use that. I would upload early. Do the uploads get slower as we approach the deadline? Absolutely. We uh, have uploaded for this examination uh, over 175,000 documents and over 220,000 images. So as it gets closer to the deadline, the system slows slows down a little bit. I would encourage you to practice, try and review your cases with someone who will look at them critically. Um, As for a few more hints, um, be honest with your complications. I can tell you as we are evaluating the case list for this coming July oral examination in 2023, The people who have a submitted case list with zero complications get a whole lot more scrutiny than people who submit case lists that report high percentages of complications. So if you think it's a complication, I would go ahead and report it. Otherwise you may be asked the question, oh, I see that there was some excessive bleeding on that case. Why did you not report that as a complication? So it's much easier if you report it as a complication and then say, you know, there was, this issue with the wound healing, and I reported that as a complication, everything healed fine. That sounds a lot better than, I just didn't report any complications. And you can be prepared to explain why the complications occurred, what you did to avoid them, and what you did to treat them. Um, I think that um, getting the patients in for follow-up is important. If you're not able to get them in for follow-up, be ready to explain You know what, you did to reach the patient to get them in for follow up prior to submitting your case list. You need to practice with colleagues who will be critical of your cases and of you and will look at the scoring rubric while reviewing your presentation. To present your 12 cases to a partner who says those cases sound good, you'll do fine. That's just not useful information for you. You really want someone to carefully review the scoring rubric and look at each case and really carefully go over those with you. Uh, you want to follow the information packets carefully. You just received one, and you'll receive one next spring. Uh, a lot of people somehow forget to upload the informed consent. Uh, that's an important document to upload on each of those 12 selected cases. Uh, the last one, I think, goes without saying. Um, if you find yourself um, arguing with the examiners, that's probably not a good thing. And it's it's somewhat of a sterile environment you will not receive feedback from the examiners they will ask you a question listen to your answer and move on to the next question that's how we coach the examiners they're instructed to score the examinees not necessarily to try and give feedback so the entire process you'll enter patient reported outcomes information at the time the surgery is scheduled You'll work on the other case list sections after the surgery is performed. Once we get to the deadline, you'll submit your case list and application and pay the application fee through your ABOS dashboard again, November 1, 2023, 4 p.m. Eastern time. The late deadline is two weeks later. The late fee is $500. We will then go out and obtain the peer review, carefully review the case list. In April of 2024, our Credentials Committee will meet, review all those applications, review all the information, and decide who sits for the examination and who does not. You'll receive an email, uh, hopefully uh, letting you know you're approved to sit for the examination. And then later in April, you'll receive a list of 12 selected cases that you'll be responsible for presenting at the time of the oral examination. You'll upload all the required documents Again, a video is available that outlines how you can upload the documents. If you have questions, please call. Uh, You'll pay the examination fee once you finalize your upload, and that date will be early in June uh, of 2024. And then you'll take the ABOS oral examination in July 2024 in Chicago. That's generally over a four-day period. Your specific date and time will be communicated by email in early June. We understand that's somewhat uh, late uh, to let you know that, but scheduling this over a four-day period with 225 examiners and 1,000 examinees is uh, somewhat difficult, matching people up by their subspecialty. So that's why that takes us until early June to get there. You'll receive an email with a link to your examination results, hopefully in late August, early September. Please keep us updated throughout your career with your contact information. This is, this is an important one. Your email address is critical. We communicate based on email. And our pledge is if you keep your email address updated, when we send you an email, that will be directly for you. We will not send blanket emails that said there's a deadline coming. If you get an email that may, and that says there's a deadline coming and you haven't submitted anything, that's meant specifically for you. If you get an email that says you haven't uploaded things for your 12 selected cases, that means we think you haven't. And so you need to keep your email address updated. That's critical information for us. Um, we have a certification specialist assigned to you uh, based on the first letter uh, uh, of your last name. They are pictured here. Uh, Denise is with us tonight, uh, and you can see the assignments there. Please don't hesitate to call us or email us at any time. We are here to help. We want to open this process up. It's not meant to take place in a dark room. Uh, We are anxious to share the process with you. I'm happy to discuss uh, any questions you may have about the process uh, at any time as well, and you can reach us at that number. don't be like the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Please keep your email updated. When you leave a residency program, when you leave a job, when your assistant changes, you have a chance to enter two emails into our system. Please keep that updated because that's how we communicate with you. And again, our pledge is that we won't send you blanket emails. We will send you emails directed specifically at you. Uh, finally, just some information. Uh, our website, as I've said uh, several times, www.abs.org. Uh, lots of information there. We also have a patient-facing website that you can point your patients to, so they understand the process you're going through. That's mycertifiedorthopedicsurgeon.org. We're on uh, all of these areas in social media and uh, try to make announcements there as well. The other thing I would encourage you to do is to take advantage of our podcast. Uh, David Elstein is with us tonight. He hosts this podcast. It's available at anchor.fm forward slash ABOS or wherever you listen to podcasts. And there are podcasts about how we administer the oral exam. There are podcasts from people who've been successful at the oral examination, people who write questions for us, orthopedic surgeons in all areas and aspects of their careers. It's really good. And I'd really encourage you to, um, uh, look at that and um, take a listen if you have the chance. That's all the formal uh, uh, presentation that I have. Again, I thank you for your attention. Um, this is my contact information there, abos.org. And our uh, phone numbers on the website. Please don't hesitate to call uh, if you have any questions. And we'll also answer any questions that you may have tonight. And what I will do is stop sharing my screen right now. And uh, if you will raise your hand, I will call on you and we will try and answer your question. Uh, okay, so first would be uh, Spencer Woolwine. And I do want to remind you that we are recording this. And if you uh, miss parts of it, Uh, We will post this on our website and also on our podcast channel as of hopefully tomorrow afternoon. So anyone you know who missed it can listen to it there Uh, and uh, we'll also answer your questions and that part will be included as well. So, uh,
2: Spencer. Uh, Can you hear me? Yes. All right. So um, I just had a question about the uh, the timing for uh, credentialing and admitting privileges at a hospital, The hospital, two of them that I will be doing probably 90 to 95% of my cases, I received all of that in September of 22. So well before the November 1st, but two of the other local hospitals have asked for me to get credentialed and admitting privileges. And one of them came in December of 22 and the children's hospital is still going through the uh whole process of looking at my residency case logs and my fellowship case login so that won't be done during this six month period should i just let those hospitals know that i will not be practicing there until after october 1 or is that still okay since i have admitting privileges before november
1: denise I believe that should be fine as long as you have admitting privileges and surgical privileges at one of the hospitals where you practice by November one. Uh, you can add hospitals along the way during that seventeen months.
3: That's correct. You can you can go ahead and get privileges at the hospitals now. You just have to keep privileges at one from November one through March thirty first.
4: Okay, sounds good. Thank you.
3: You're welcome.
1: Uh, and next we have. Uh, Sonia Karana, I hope I'm saying that correctly.
5: Hi, yes you are. Thanks for the webinar, that was very informative. Um, I have a couple of questions. Um, The first refers to the peer references. So to clarify, we are gonna select five diplomates who are um, familiar with our practice, but ABOS is also going to um, send out surveys to the rest of the diplomates in town.
1: Uh, So we will send out um, peer review surveys, and I should have mentioned those five individuals are individuals that have not been listed elsewhere on your application. So we will send out peer review to the individuals that are listed on your application, and those are the ones that I mentioned. And then we also will use a a zip code list to send out a certain number of uh, zip code requests as well.
5: So the five that we submit, um, are these, uh, surgeons in town, you know, that we've maybe referred cases with or discussed cases with, or can they be five surgeons anywhere? Um, you know, I was in practice previously. Do any of those surgeons count?
1: Uh, that would be okay. Uh, we'd like to have surgeons who are familiar with your current practice. Okay. uh, uh, first and foremost, but if there are not enough of those, you can utilize the people you practice with, uh, prior to, uh, your current practice.
5: So I'm in a big city, um, and I already, you know, have surgeons in mind, um, for the five. So then the rest of the surgeons in town that are ABOS certified will also be getting a survey as
1: well. Uh, probably not all of them. I mean, where there's a certain number that we send based on, again, the zip code of your practice. Okay. And um, we also, the, the, um, we exclude the individuals who are on your application so they don't get to, or don't get barraged.
5: Okay. Um, but everyone within a certain zip code will be getting a survey from ABOS or a pre-reference from ABOS.
1: No, not everyone. Again, we use the zip code list of diplomates and do sort of concentric circles and send out a certain number. And it may depend on how many. We also don't uh, send a, a large number of peer review requests to uh, one individual. So if someone's already gotten two from somebody else's application in your area, then they may not get one and it'll move to the next person. So it's a, it's an algorithm that, that that sends out a certain number of zip code Uh, request for each person.
5: Okay. Um, Thank you for clarifying. And then you had mentioned that we'll have to have the contact info for, you know, the chief of anesthesiology, the chief of emergency medicine um, at the hospitals we're at. Are those um, peer references as well?
1: Uh, Yes, those are for peer review. That's correct.
5: Okay. Um, And then can you um, clarify this case list feedback report? Um, You said that comes after we take the exam and that just compares, I guess our practice to others um, I guess in our peer group.
1: Yes, that will that has um, basic demographic information from your your case list compared to the others in your subspecialty area and in your geographic area. So number of cases, most common CPT codes, uh, those types of things. That, that's for your information.
5: Okay. Um, and there was um, a webinar recently hosted by AOS that says that um, for our 12 cases, when we're putting in the case entry time, um, case entry uh, that asks for surgical time, is that just the surgeon's time or is that, um, you know, total time in the OR, anesthesia time, all that?
1: That would be on the case summary. And generally, that's the... the uh, surgical time, sort of skin to skin, if you will.
5: Okay. Um, and my last question is, um, just since we're starting collection soon, what is the best way to document, um, OR delays? Um, I recently had a patient with, um, compartment syndrome who couldn't go for four hours because there were no ORs available. And, um, this hospital does not have a trauma room.
1: Uh, so I I think that's something that you would document in your chart. I mean, we don't need that right. documented for the cases. Yeah.
5: Oh, that's. I mean, I, w- I would. I assume that if that case would were to get chosen, that that's something ABS would want to know. or n- not necessarily.
1: Well, that would certainly that I, I would. You know, that would be something that would. You know, you would present at the time of the case presentation, or at the time. You know, you would submit documentation. Yeah, if that's okay. noted in the chart, that would be something that would, would come up. In the okay,
5: um, and then uh, real quick back to the um, peer references. So as I mentioned, I was in a previous practice. Um, it was a large hospital group, um, and I didn't even know all the surgeons in that group. Does ABOS um, survey our previous partners as well?
1: So you will list your previous practice on the application and it will ask you to list the, Denise, how many part, 10? 12. 12. The 12, and if if you had 12 partners or more, the 12 that were closest uh, to being familiar with your practice, the closest to your practice.
5: Okay, I have contact info for most, but not all. If they are diplomats, would ABOS have that contact info for them?
4: Uh, yeah, well,
1: yes. Um, but you, we would just need an email for the, you need their name and an email for yeah. each of those individuals.
5: Okay. Cause some of them have actually moved on to other jobs, um, since then. So I was trying to figure out, you know, what's the best way to track them down for this?
1: Uh, I, Denise, again, help me. I mean, I think we would, use, I would, Call them on the telephone and ask them their email and just tell them you're filling out the application you need their email. Okay. All right, sounds yeah. good,
5: thank you. Thank you very much.
1: No problem, thank you. Uh, and next we have uh, Richard Samadhi, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. Do my best with the pronunciations.
6: Yes, sir, that's correct. Thank you, Dr. Martin, for that presentation. And thank you uh, everyone else in the ABOS for being here tonight, it was, this was very helpful. Two quick questions. Um, First one again on the um, the peer survey. Um, I was just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on how those are used um, for the selection of whether or not you sit for the board the oral examination. Is it just a, a composite of scores that they rate us on based on perceived professionalism, patient? Uh, outcomes that they've heard about and averaging those or taking a minimum. Um, And then my second question is, um, speaking of scores, uh, I know you said that there was a oral examination committee that looks at um, the totality of everyone's scores by all the examiners and determines what's the, the minimum standard. Is it such that uh, there may inevitably be some people that don't pass, or is it theoretically possible that everyone can pass as long as they meet that minimum requirement?
1: Uh, so I can handle the last one first. Uh, there's if everyone meets the uh, passing standard, then everyone passes. So there's it's not there's not a curve or a certain percentage of people that need to pass or fail. Um, we're looking at uh, setting a standard, setting a bar. Uh, And then uh, the other question that you asked was uh, concerning the peer review. So the peer review is reviewed in its totality. Uh, There are uh, questions concerning an individual's familiarity with your practice, questions concerning an individual's uh, opinion as to your um, suitability for board certification. And then there are uh, questions that require numerical ratings in Patient care management of complex problems, surgical skill, uh, communication, uh, integrity, and behavior. Behavior. Thank you. Professionalism, behavior, uh, and so those ratings. Those ratings are then all submitted, and they're looked at all together. Um, so each person's peer review is looked at uh, individually. And then Absolutely. there are certain trips that allow us to do, that will tr- that will cause us to do a more in-depth review. So I hope that's clear.
6: Yes, yes, that, that did um, clear up that process a little bit. It's just, I think maybe may be the first time a lot of us are hearing about more in detail about that particular portion of the selection criteria. So we apologize for uh, so many questions about no, that.
1: No problem, that's fine. No problem. Uh, Next would be Tyler White.
7: Are you able to hear me?
1: Yes. All
7: right, thank you very much for your time. Um, Just two quick questions. The first one being, and I may have missed it in the informational packet when I reviewed it. Is there a minimum number of cases in the collections window that need to be submitted in order to be uh, uh qualified to sit for part two? Uh
1: yes, you have to have uh, 35 surgical cases in the six month time period to be eligible to sit for the examination.
7: That that was 35, 35, sir.
1: Yes, 35.
7: Okay, thank you. And then just another quick question. I think I have potentially the opposite problem than the other couple of questions as far as peer reviews. I practice in an extremely rural area. Um, I'm the only, I think, person in my subspecialty for a few hundred miles around. And uh, so anybody that I would fill out on the form would be my partners who are the other only orthopedic surgeons around here. So um, what, what I guess typically if you're basing things off zip codes, what typically happens when that's the case?
1: So um, first of all, um, y- you know, we would take the individuals uh, that are listed on your application, obtain peer review there, uh, then use the zip code. Uh, um, to uh, generate additional peer review, and then um, depending on where we stand at that point, we would evaluate uh, how much uh, uh, the level of peer review that we've obtained and where it, where it sits, and decide if we need more peer review or not at that point.
3: If you refer patients them. out, if you refer patients out to a larger mm-hmm. hospital, you can put those people down. Okay,
7: I I do send some complicated patients back to my fellowship program in another state. Would those people be allowable then?
4: Yes, yes. Thank you for your time.
1: Great, no problem. Okay. Sahicha Danduluri,
4: how'd I do? Can you hear me? yes
6: hey um, I just had a quick question regarding the uh, the 14 days um, the break I'm going on like a a big family trip for a wedding and it's like a a, a two week thing from and I think I'm leaving on a Friday like would we'll be in practice and coming back and so it's I guess technically it's 13 days um, does it I mean does the weekends and things count for that or I guess is it just the, the actual gap or?
4: Um, no, if it's two work weeks, then we would want you to back up until March. 1. So go ahead, plan to back up. Okay, that answers the question. Thank you. No problem. Uh, Michael Mario Renzi, Can you hear me? Yes.
7: Excellent. Mine's a relatively specific question. In terms of compiling the case list for the patient ID number, I presume that is their hospital medical record number, not the office medical record number.
1: Uh, yes, that that it should be the medical record number at either the hospital uh, or the the surgery center medical record number, right? Not their chart number. That's correct. Excellent. Absolutely. that's a great question. Thank you.
4: Thanks, everyone. And next would be Corey
8: Pham. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Cool. I have, just have two questions. Um, the first question is, if let's say you take a year off or you did a fellowship year and hypothetically you fail your boards the first time, how many more times do you have to take before it's within the five years?
1: So the five years don't start until you pass the part one examination. So so after you finish your uh, an accredited residency, you're eligible to sit for the part one uh, uh, ABOS board certification examination. Once you pass that, that starts the
8: five-year clock on your board eligibility. Yeah, I got that part, that part. But I'm saying, let's say you did a fellowship year, and um, you do, let's say you took your, You get you can sit down for your first board exam, right? And let's say you fail, and you say within five years. So how many theoretically how many times can you actually take this board, you know, within that five years? So
1: yeah. So your point of confusion is the five years. Yeah. Five year no five year clock until you pass the examination. So you you may take the examination at any time, uh, any number of times. The five years doesn't come into play until you pass it. Okay. Yeah. So there's not there's not a five year clock that starts until you pass the examination. So if you fail it this year and complete a fellowship, you you take it a year from then. If you fail it then, you take it a year from then. Uh, you, there's no five year limit there. The five years comes in once you pass the examination. Then you become board eligible.
8: No, I pass
3: part one.
8: No, I'm saying once you already pass yeah. pass one right. So you already finished your um ABOS one and then you do a fellowship okay. year and then you start you know the five-year window right so let's say right. you sit down and you um let's say this year you failed the test how many more times can you take it within that five years I guess that's like because you know it's every single 17 months interval so I'm you curious you
3: basically have three years within that five-year window because you have to practice yeah. basically for two years before you can sit for the exam So, you basically have three chances to pass the examination in that five year window.
8: Got it. And then the second question I have to ask is I've noticed, you know, just going back to the board, is that uh, previously, you know, the failure rate was like five to 6%. And then most recently, it was like 20, almost 20%. Was there a reason in the changes in, you know, how the test was being administered or? Uh,
1: no, not that we have, uh, ascertained. And I would say, uh, those numbers are a a little bit skewed. Uh, the pass rate between, um, 20 and, and, um, 21 was in the range of 90 to 92%. The pass rate, um, in, uh, 2023, uh, was in the range of 86 to 87% for first time takers. Uh, it was prior to, uh 2020 in the range of 95 96% uh and uh it it appears we have tried to give the same exam uh year over year and arrive at a, the same passing standard um uh, clearly either the exam was somewhat different the passing standard was somewhat different or the group that took the examination was somewhat different and uh we have sort of looked at that uh, as carefully as we can and are uh, going to keep a close watch on that. Okay,
4: thank you so much. Sure. Uh,
1: Dr. Gale, I hope I pronounced that correctly.
0: Thank you, Dr. Martin, and everyone at ABOS for doing this, and thank you for your patience. A uh, few uh, quick questions. My understanding is each OR visit is a new case. Is that correct? So, for example, if I have a patient with a septic joint, I debride them once, and then a few days later, I have to take him back to the OR. So, that would be another case registration with email entry, and just um, so do it all over again. Is that is that correct? Will That's correct. Yes. Twice?
4: Yes. Each trip to
1: the operating room is a separate case.
0: Okay, and then just to kind of continue on the previous uh, candidate's question, if you, so for example, a candidate takes an exam, uh, the oral exam in, uh, in July of 24, and then you learn in August that you failed exam. So what happens at that point? Are they able to use the cases from the previous year, like between 24 and sit for the exam in 25? Or do they have to do case collection in 25 and then sit in 26?
1: No, you would, we would give you the opportunity to enter the cases from 2024. Okay. Um, to sit in 2025. And so then you would retrospectively enter those. Those would not have patient reported outcomes.
0: Okay. And uh, just how you, how did the board view the patient reported outcome or, or I guess what's the, what's the purpose is that used for deciding whether a candidate passes the exam or if he's able to sit for the exam? Like what's what's the purpose, I guess, as I'm trying to understand?
1: Uh, no, right now, what we're trying to do is look at um, the patient reported outcomes a- as a whole and gather data. Uh, we're also trying to uh, educate uh, individuals in uh, the, the value of patient reported outcomes. So hopefully when we get the reports uh, back to you, Uh, concerning the patient-reported outcomes. uh, Those will be valuable to you. And uh, those are reviewed uh, by our credentials committee. Uh, But at this point, they're not utilized in the examination process.
0: Okay, so I would not necessarily get penalized based on how many emails I obtained or how many of my patients actually do the survey, complete the survey.
1: Uh, No, I would say you would not get penalized. I would say that uh, um, people have been uh extraordinarily successful at getting us emails okay. um, it's been a really successful program
0: and uh, then one last question do i have the ability to delete any cases i might have put in just because either i put in the information before and for some reason they did not proceed with the surgery or if i just want to look at a promise score and i put in my name do i have the ability to delete it in the case list
1: yes yes I mean, you need to, obviously, if you do a case, it needs to be on the list during that six-month time period. But if you don't end up doing the case or, right, you put yourself in there, you can delete that. Thank you so much. Appreciate your patience. No problem. Uh,
4: Next, Dr. Wall.
5: Hi, thank you. My um, question has to do with when adding someone to the list. So if if you're unable to get their email address or they don't have an email address, you're unable to add them into that promise um, form. So how can they get onto onto the case list
9: form?
3: You can opt out on the promise list. At the bottom of that list, it says patient opt out. If you just click on patient opt out, then you can go in and add the information for that case on your scribe list.
5: Okay, so if we're unable to get an email address, then we should click that just so that we can get the case added onto our our list.
3: Correct.
4: Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Next will be Dr. Hightower.
10: Hey, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Perfect. Uh, Thanks again for your time tonight. I'll try to be quick. Um, So I, I think I got just three quick questions. Uh, following up from the person that asked about the patient ID number. So the patient ID number when you're entering a case is the patient's medical record number at the location where the surgery was performed. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So yeah, cause like I see patients in clinic, but then do surgery at a surgery center and they have different MRNs based upon that. So I would just do the surgery center number then. Um, okay. Um, okay. For complications, I know you said it's, uh, you know, be honest, obviously, was the first thing to do. Um, And you said, maybe overreporting is better than underreporting in the complications thing. I guess I'm wondering, how do you determine what counts as a complication? And because I thought you said something about there's an algorithm y'all use that looks at number of complications as a whole in your case list, and maybe would put up a red flag if that number was really high i suppose so i mean if you over report minor things that maybe aren't technically complications like the example you gave of uh you know slightly increased bleeding or something is that going to hurt you in the end like i mean how do you find that sweet spot of like you know wanting to be completely honest but also not shooting yourself in the foot by doing that
1: uh sure that's a judgment call um and um you know, uh, uh, so that's a difficult one. I I, I think um, you you sort of need to um, make that judgment. And I, I would, uh, you know, again, it's far easier to. I would just say if it's me and you're looking for advice just from David Martin, an orthopedic surgeon, it's far easier when you ask when you. Look at a case and say, Really, you counted that as a complication? I say, Well, yeah, I thought there were some wound issues. And so I counted that as a complication. I wasn't happy with that. So that's why I counted that. That's a whole lot easier answer than if you say, Well, this patient obviously had wound problems. Why wouldn't you list that as a complication? That, that's a harder question to answer for me, right? And then I have to say, well, I guess uh, you know, I don't count complications the same way as you. I, I just think. You have to make the judgment, um, but I would err on the side of listing them uh, so that uh, they can be appropriately evaluated. That that would sort of be my advice.
10: Okay, I appreciate that, and I only bring that up because you know you have friends in residency and everything ahead of you, and that seems to be a question that most people bring up: is does this count? Should I list as a complication? So I appreciate the feedback. And then yeah, um, it's very
1: difficult. If you look at the drop-down menus, it it will be a little bit more clear.
10: Okay, gotcha. Last question is, if if I register a patient for the patient report outcomes, um, because we're obviously trying to do that preoperatively and that case gets canceled, Um, I guess I haven't seen the actual system yet, but you said we can delete that in that scenario? Yes. Okay. All
4: right, thank you. No problem, take care, thank you. Dr. Hoyt has the next question. Bobby, can you hear me? Yes.
7: Oh, fantastic. Um, so I guess uh, to just build off on a, a previous question that sort of got danced around a little bit, if we're in a practice uh, where we're essentially um, practicing, almost like on an island where we in an VA system uh, where we have sort so many patients that we actually free screen our clinics. And so things we can't take care of, we, we never see and therefore don't send out as referrals. Is there really a system in place then for, you know, the people around us I've never met, or even I'm not even aware of who's around me as far as orthopedic surgeons. Uh, is there a system in place for, if we just don't know anybody, should I be going out right now and kissing babies to, to try to make some connections with those orthopedic surgeons around me right now?
1: No, I think you could list, uh, first of all, again, you list all the individuals that are on the application and then it asks for five diplomates in your area. Uh, and I think you could list five orthopedic surgeons uh, that are in your area. I mean, I think you'd be surprised at how much they know about your practice, um, and I think you'd be surprised at how honest they are in providing uh, really um, uh, reasonable peer review. But uh, so I think you you can enter people who are around your practice, and there's also an opt out. If they don't know you, they can opt out and not uh, uh, fill out the questionnaire. So. Uh, I would uh, uh, look at people who are in in your geographic area and then people who may be familiar with your practice uh, outside of that geographic area.
4: Thanks so much. Sure. Uh, Next is
1: Dr. Stenquist.
11: Thanks very much. and Thank you for your time again tonight. Really appreciate it. My question is related to a second fellowship and during the 17 months, I'm just wondering if we are pursuing a short-term fellowship, um, you know, six to eight weeks, if it falls outside of the collection period, is that fine? Because you said we have to be, you know, employed at the same hospital for 17 months, as long as, you know, my employment isn't changing during that 17 months and my job will still be there when I get back. But if I am doing one of those, short-term fellowships but it falls outside of the board's collection period is that fine uh
1: as as far as i can tell if i understand your question uh yes um but i'm not i guess i don't understand exactly the question what when when is that fellowship going to take place because if you got privileges in November, uh, you're talking about between November and April 1, or between, uh, I guess I'm uh, unclear, because that would also change your practice during that time period. That would mean that you're not actually engaged in practice in the same place. So I don't think that would meet the 17-month requirement.
11: For example, um, if I got privileges in September of 2022, Collect now, finish collecting in September. And then if I'm on a fellowship for six weeks for an for an AO fellowship abroad, and then I come back and continue practicing, that's um, you know, there are probably multiple people on the call who may be in a situation like that. So just sort of curious how that how that plays into
4: it. So
1: if it occurs during the April to September time period. Uh, then we're going to need to probably back up your caseload. We need to back up your caseload. We need six months. I'm sorry.
11: I, I, I meant it's going to outside of that. Yeah. Yeah. Outside of that, outside of the collection period.
1: Uh, then you would still be at the same practice. So that would be a, a traveling fellowship that that's okay. If you stop your practice to, do another fellowship at a a different location, a traveling fellowship, like an AO fellowship, uh, North American traveling fellowship, those types of things, that would be okay.
11: Thank you very much.
4: Sure. Uh, Dr. Reardon. Hey, can you hear me? Yes.
12: Hey, uh, so I had a quick question about informed consent. Uh, so when I see patients in clinic, uh, and I sign them up for surgery, I will, you know, discuss all the risks and benefits and everything and document all that. Uh, but we don't do like paper consents in clinic that people are filling out. So when I get to the hospital or surgery center that I do the case that I'll fill out the paper consent there. Um, but a lot of those are pretty bare bones, like they don't really have space for me to write anything other than the surgery. Um, is that an issue? Like, do, do those need things need to physically be on the consent that the patient signed? Like, usually I'll, I'll say something like, you know, risk and benefits were previously discussed and all questions were answered. Um, or does that physically need to, like, be on the consent that they signed?
1: I, I think we would not want you to change your practice. And so if that's something that you're comfortable with and you're comfortable uh, knowing and, and understanding the patient... Uh, has a good grasp of the surgery that you're planning to do and uh, the risk benefits, alternatives, and complications, I think that uh, that's fine. Uh, uh, You have to explain your practice. We're not anxious for you to change your practice, um, but uh, you need to be ready to explain that and explain how that occurs. Um, And uh, so, again, we don't want you to change your practice, change what you do. We want to look at your practice as it is, And if you're comfortable with that, uh, which it sounds like you are, then I would present that uh, just as you did.
12: Okay. Appreciate it. Thanks.
4: Sure. Uh, Dr. Gold. you Hello. Hi. Uh, Can you hear me? Just barely. How about are that's a little better.
2: Uh, so my question is similar about consenting for the patients. So it sounds like there's a few things that we need to make patients aware of. Number one would be to get their emails get consent for the PROs. And then the second would be the specific informed consent on their PHI for the 12 cases that get presented. So from your standpoint, what, at what point in time should we be getting the PHI informed consent on all patients? And then it's going to know we get our 12 cases with those 12 already done, or we should wait until those 12 cases, 12 cases, then reach out to those patients to get the PHI consent. And then is there a specific consent reform that needs to be filled out for the PRO email um,
4: as well? So
1: We don't need to see the um, patient-reported outcomes consent. Once you you get permission from the patient to provide us with email, that's all we need there. The consent form that I was talking about was the consent form that gives you permission to do the surgery. The consent form that, uh, you know, you obtain in getting permission from the patient to do the surgery. That's the consent form uh, that needs to be uploaded if you do not want to redact the PHI, we do not need to see that consent form. That's between you and the patient. So if you don't redact and there's PHI there, we are going to assume that you have gotten uh, consent from the patient to leave that PHI there.
4: Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great, thank you. Sure. Uh, next is
1: Dr. Hulick.
12: Uh, thank you, Dr. Martin. Um, so I saw in the the presentation that uh, a candidate can't drop or suspend privileges at any affiliated hospital. Um, my group is currently discussing pulling out of a hospital altogether, and there's another hospital that's being bought by Um, a different hospital system that may exclude us from practice there. Does that preclude me as a candidate if my group drops or if the hospital squeezes my group out entirely?
1: Uh, I I, so it's difficult, it's difficult to say without knowing the details. What I would say is that, um, generally, from what you explained, I would say no. Uh, but you would need to um, send us a letter of explanation for that.
12: Okay, because and I'm not currently a partner in the group, so I don't I don't have any say so as to what they decide, um, which is you know a little bit frustrating at this particular time that they're discussing uh, pulling privileges. Right. Um, so wh- what I guess what form of documentation would you need? like something from my group president that said we as a group, Elected to remove ourselves from practicing at this particular hospital and it's one of my peripheral hospitals. I do maybe 5% of my cases there, um, but it is a hospital that I currently practice. Uh, do you, yes,
4: have, privileges?
3: Be... Do you yeah. have privileges at a hospital somewhere else? Oh, yes, ma'am, no, I do. Have I, I have
12: privileges. I have, I have privileges at our main admitting hospital, but we also take call at three other peripheral hospitals. Um, and it's one of those peripheral hospitals that my group is looking at withdrawing from.
3: Yeah, that's fine. You can just send us, send your certification specialist a letter from the manager of your group stating that y'all decided as a group to take privileges away from that facility.
12: Okay, thank you. Um, and I, I also, I, I practice in South Alabama. Uh, not all of my patients have email addresses. Um, and I, you know, to avoid having a higher percentage of opt-outs, would it be permissible to have a family member's email address entered or is it specific for the patient?
4: Uh, no, you
1: can use a family member, uh, if that's available, uh, um, or you can opt out for those patients either way is fine.
12: Okay. Um, and, uh. Going back to a question about the informed consent, similarly, multiple hospitals, it's an electronic informed consent. Um, I tell them what case is going to go on there. It gets electronically put in, patient signs it. I separately dictate the risks and benefits conversation that I had with the patient in the interval H&P. Is that sufficient uh, to be uploaded as a, a risk and benefits conversation that's not signed by the patient, but I have that conversation with them?
1: Uh, I would upload both of those things. I would upload something that's signed by the patient and I would upload, uh, the note that, uh, documents your conversation.
12: Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for your time.
1: No problem. Take care. Uh, Dr.
4: Walker.
2: Hi, thank you guys so much for your time. Thank you, Dr. Martin. Uh, I had a question kind of similar to the the, uh, last question, but I'm actually probably gonna be getting adding privileges at a hospital. um, And that's not during the November time period. Is that a problem? Or is that something you need to explain or?
1: No, no, that would not be a problem. We want to hear about the fish though.
2: Oh, do you like that mahi-mahi? That was down in Miami. I was actually, I did my, did my sub, do you fish?
1: Uh, some.
2: Now, there yeah. we go. Yeah. 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 That was that. That was my, I mean, that was a, that was a good sub by,
4: good uh, but yeah. Okay. Um, th- th-
2: I'm glad that was an easy question. So
4: thank you. No problem. Take care. Uh,
1: Dr. Rosso. Rosso.
6: Yes. Oh, cool. Yep. Uh, so my uh, hospital is likely to get acquired um, sometime, any going from uh, the next month to who knows how many years from now, but the process is ongoing. Um, so my employer will change, technically a different hospital, but likely same role and same building. I imagine that's not a problem since I'm not electing to leave or being pushed out. Is that right?
1: That's Yes. Correct. Again, I think you would just explain that to
4: us. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Dr. Halsgrief. Hey, Dr. Martin. Um, Quick question.
6: Can you just confirm real quick that we should not be including trigger finger releases in the case list even if performed in the operating room? It's included on one of the
4: cases to not include. Is that accurate?
1: So hopefully, as of now, that, in fact, is not included on those lists. And so you can include that as a case. You should include that as a case. We made that change.
6: Oh, really? Okay. All
2: right. Currently on the ABUS website, I'm looking at it right now. It it is one of those CPT codes. Um, But I just wanted to clarify
1: that. Uh, We will look into that. But what I would do is go ahead and list that. It should allow you to list that. Okay.
4: All right, thank you. No problem.
1: Uh, next, Dr. Perumal.
4: Can
10: you guys hear me? Yes. Thanks, Dr. Martin and the, and the group. Thanks for your time and uh, a lot of information here. My question is the the 14-day period. You know, What if I'm vacation during my board collection period for a week and the next week I don't have a OR uh, block time and I don't operate on that week. And in the log, it usually shows a gap of two weeks then. Uh, Does it count
4: as two weeks or? No,
1: that would not count as two weeks away. So it's two consecutive weeks. You don't have to do an operation in the week in the middle, but if you're gone for two consecutive weeks, then
10: that would back up the case list. Okay, so even if I, you know, don't have any case log, the next week it doesn't count, correct? That's
1: correct. You you may get an email that asks you to explain that why there was that three week gap in cases, uh, but you would just explain that you were away one week, you didn't operate the next week, you were away the next week, and then you were back to practice.
8: Okay. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much.
1: No
4: problem. Uh,
1: Dr. Wessel.
9: Hi. Um, question. If we've done two fellowships, you mentioned that you spend a lot of time on choosing board examiners. Um, would we expect that one from be from each fellowship or is it, I've heard different rumors that it's greater than 50% of your cases. How, how do you decide uh, who the examiners
1: are? Uh, We try to match the examiners to the case list. So in fact, the actual cases that you submit will uh, be the best predictor of what what examiners we try to um, assign.
9: Got it. And then one additional question, this is along the lines of some other questions, but say you haven't left a facility, but you... um, your practice changed hospitals or environments for whatever reason, uh, in between when you list your cases and when you then upload the final 12, I think of the summer in July. Um, if you don't have access to those medical records, I guess, is there, should we be keep it? I guess, what is the solution for that?
1: Uh, yeah, that's, that's a problem. Um, the best solution is to, um, uh, try to keep access to those records. So as you separate from institution, you need to let the institution know that you are in your board collection period and you would need to have access to those documents and images. Uh, that's the best option. Um, and especially if it's a significant portion of your practice.
9: Got it, okay. Thank you.
4: No problem. Uh, Yes, Dr. Karana.
5: Hi, um, for the uh, peer references, what is the maximum number of peer references um, ABOS will send out to other uh, diplomats in town besides the references that we list, because you said there was an algorithm for that um, within the zip code.
1: Uh, there's so we don't have a maximum that we send; we have uh, minimums that we like to receive. So if we we send an initial grouping and we receive. Uh, a reasonable number uh, of peer reviews. Uh, that's uh, adding both ones that we receive back from the application and from uh, the zip code list. Then if we have enough, then we stop. If we don't have enough, we send more.
5: What does ABOS consider enough?
1: Uh, generally, we like to have seven completed uh, uh peer review, uh, questionnaires, and, uh, at least five of those from orthopedic surgeons. Oh,
5: okay. So that seven includes the five that we would be listing as references.
1: Well, it can, if they, it depends on who returns the form and who fills it out, uh, completely. Yes.
5: Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you.
4: Uh, next will be
1: Dr. Hall.
9: On a similar question, um, Vane, does it matter if those diplomats are um, board certified by the ABOS or AOBOS?
1: So the five additional diplomats uh, that come up in the drop down menu will be ABOS diplomats. Uh, if there are uh, um, diplomates of the AOBOS in your area and you contact uh, the certification specialist um, uh, with the email, we can add them to the list. Thank you. No problem.
4: Uh,
10: Dr. Hightower. Hey, um, I heard someone ask a question along this line a second ago and I missed the whole question, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating one, but um, how is it determined exactly how you're reviewed in terms of, uh, whether or not you're reviewed on a subspecialized basis or a general basis? For instance, like I, uh, and did a hand fellowship and that's the majority of my practice, but I take general orthopedic call. Is it based upon like percentage of cases? You know, if I do a bunch of hemis, am I going to be reviewed by a generalist versus a hand surgeon or how is that determined?
1: Uh, Again, it's determined by the case list and by the selected cases and also by the examiner. So uh, each examiner uh, has a scorecard, if you will. Uh, So we fill out a form that says my primary subspecialty is sports medicine, but I'm comfortable examining uh, candidates in adult reconstruction and shoulder and elbow and trauma along with sports medicine. Other people may say on my subspecialty surgery to hand, I'm only comfortable examining people in surgery to hand. Uh, again, other people may say on com- my subspecialty spine, uncomfortable examining in spine and pediatric orthopedic surgery. So we try to match the comfort level of the examiner with the cases that are on the case list, along with the cases that uh, the 12 selected cases. Okay,
10: gotcha. So for instance, you could have maybe one room that's all hand surgeons, another room that's maybe not hand surgeons if those cases in that room are non-hand cases. Is that possible?
1: Uh yeah, although it depends on what it depends on what those examiners are comfortable with, right? So they could be adult reconstruction surgeons that you identify as adult reconstruction surgeons who have told us that they're comfortable examining in hand or spine or uh, trauma. And there okay. may be surgery of the hand examiners who are comfortable examining in trauma. So that, uh, you know, hip fracture is a fairly um, standard case. So that that's sort of where that comes in. Gotcha. Thank you. No problem.
4: Uh, any further
1: questions? Uh, Dr. Uh, Agawar Harding.
7: I think this um, question was partially covered before, but just a little bit of clarification for the few of us who have academic practices um, and uh, for whom our responsibilities may require us doing things that are away from the operating room, like teaching in courses, uh, teaching in the medical schools, uh, traveling for conferences, that sort of thing. If there are gaps in our um, in our case list because of activities such as that, um, and they get flagged, for example, uh, we'll just have to explain that by email. I think I understood that from your previous uh, answer. Is, is that correct?
4: Yes. Yes.
3: If your gap is greater than two weeks, you will have to back your case list up.
4: Okay.
1: If it's a, a gap away from practice. If you're practicing, meaning you're seeing patients during that time period, then you don't. But that's something that... But the there's a trip in the case list if there's greater than two weeks between a case that that will be reviewed
7: got it thanks very much
4: no problem uh
1: dr Gale.
0: yeah gail just want to clarify it's uh two weeks two consecutive weeks right i mean it can be broken up
1: that's correct two consecutive weeks 14 days thank you no problem uh Dr. Jackson
2: Hello um, quick question about the promise uh, scores um, how should we approach pediatric patients or patients that can't communicate
1: uh so we don't have questionnaires for pediatric patients at this time we're working on that and uh, if they are not uh, English or Spanish speaking then uh, um, we, do not have questionnaires for them either. So they would be opt-outs. Thank you.
4: Any other questions? Ah,
1: Dr. Kashigar, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly.
6: Yep, that's correct, thank you. Uh, question about the template for case summary. Is there a template available somewhere to download? For the one-page case summary at the beginning of each case,
1: that will that will come with the twelve uh, selected cases, uh, and there's a uh, that's actually a, a form that's filled out in drop-down fashion.
12: Oh, I gotcha.
6: Perfect. And how do we know the contents of that uh, case summary in advance? Is it possible
4: or the
1: uh, you know the contents because you actually enter the contents of the case summary.
6: Okay. But in advance, we don't, because I've seen uh, some people mentioning like blood losses being part of that case summary and some other questions as part of that case summary. Is is there particular items that are part of that?
1: Uh, it's, it's standard information that would help you present the case. Oh, not, yeah. Yeah. Not the history. Decision-making, differential diagnosis, procedure, uh, some questions around the procedure, uh, uh, such as blood loss. Uh, I believe procedure time is there as well. Follow-up, learning points. I think those are the types of things. It's fairly straightforward.
4: Thank you. Uh, Dr. Pollard.
7: Yeah. Hi, sir. Just a quick question in regards to procedures we shouldn't, um, include, you know, is that list all exhaustive right there? Because I just looked up that trigger figure comment and and it actually says the trigger figure shouldn't be included.
1: Um, yeah, that's something that, um, we'll have to look into, uh, that, um, I, I I think you may be getting a cached page there, but we'll, we'll look into that, but. You should include a trigger finger, and otherwise, that that the list that you shouldn't include is right there. Those are the procedures you shouldn't include.
7: Okay, so on that same line, just anything that's, um, you know, any type of injection, basically in the joint,
4: you know, you don't you don't want to hear about, as in
7: uh, a steroid injection.
1: No, no, we're looking at, at, at surgical cases. So if it sounds like a surgical case, yeah, that that's the type of thing we're looking
7: for. Uh, and last question with that, um, um, kyphoplasties I see are on there. You don't want to hear about those, um, it sounds like. Correct. Okay. Thank you very much.
1: No problem. Um, and Dr. Geiger.
10: Uh, a question related to the timing of entry with the need to have preoperative PROs. Doesn't sound like I can just submit a batch of cases a month after the fact to catch up. Is this best done really in real time so that after I book a case, we'll enter the PRO form. But if the case is not done until a month later, I'll log back in to update that entry with details like maybe the actual CPT codes or blood loss or surgical time, things like that. So you're really kind of going in and out of a patient record a few times to get it done appropriately.
1: Uh, Yes, just to be clear, blood loss is not on that form. We showed a a picture of that form. The blood loss comes with the 12 selected cases. Uh, So the information, you'll need to go back and enter the the procedure that you did, the CPT codes, the follow-up, any complications that occurred. So it's not something that you can necessarily batch. It's something that you need to follow throughout the six-month period.
4: Okay, thanks. Sure. Uh, any other questions? Okay. Uh, Denise, David,
1: Kristen, did we miss anything? No. Okay. Uh, if any questions come up, please don't hesitate to call us. Uh, we're here to try and help you through the process and, uh, make it as clear and as, um, Uh, streamlined as possible. Uh, We're happy to hear suggestions as well. And uh, otherwise, again, as we noted, this will be posted on our website and also posted on our uh, podcast site uh, by late tomorrow afternoon. Uh, Thank you very much for your attention. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in July of 2024. Take care.